Talk Shoes. Recorded live. From St. Louis, Missouri, it's Keys to Lost, a musician's point of view of the ABC television series Lost. Hosted by keyboardists Matt Murdock and Leslie Santi. And now, here's Matt and Leslie. And from St. Louis, it's our second uh, community call. We're actually going to be reviewing an episode on this show. We're going to be reviewing the pilot part two, which was uh, episode two on the DVDs. Of course, one and two both showed up as uh, a single show when it originally aired, but now it's all separated out, and uh, we'll call this part two of the pilot. Uh, joining me, of course, is my co-host, Leslie Santi. How are you, you doing, Leslie? I'm great. I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you? Oh, I just finished a gig a little while ago, and I'm still trying to get out of that mode, actually. <laughs> uh, well, welcome back. <laughs> right on. So uh, before we get into the show itself, uh, we always give ourselves a shameless plug of where we're playing this week or in the future. And Leslie, you're taking a trip, so you're not going to be playing anywhere until the end of the month. Is that right? That's right. Uh, this week um, is is my is a week off. Um, next Friday night, though, uh, is my first gig back in St. Louis. You can catch me at Squires, uh, which is a restaurant bar in Lafayette Square, um, the Lafayette Square district of St. Louis, at 8 p.m. on Friday night, June 26th. Um, that's the last gig, I believe. There's another one in Illinois the following night, but that's the last gig in St. Louis this month. All right. Um, I've got my usual standbys. You can catch me every Monday at the Broadway Oyster Bar, which is at 736 South Broadway with Sular Blues Band from 9 to 1. Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I'm in at the Beal on Broadway, which is at 701 South Broadway with Eric McSpadden. Those times vary depending on whether there's baseball or not. When there's baseball, we play early from 530 to 730. When there's not baseball, we play later from 8 to 10. Wednesday, since the 17th, since we're playing uh, early, I also booked a gig with Park Avenue Jazz at Hammerstones and Soulard. And then Friday, you can catch me with the Bottoms Up Blues Gang at Blues on the Mississippi, uh, which is at Jefferson Barracks Park. Saturday, two gigs. The 20th, let's see, uh, Mount Pleasant Winery, which is in Augusta, Missouri, from 2 p.m., until 5, and then at BB's Chest Blues and Soups at 700 South Broadway, right across the street from Beale. Uh, that's from 10 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. And finally, Sunday, I am at Squires uh, at 11 a.m. for their brunch solo piano, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. What a weekend, um, Matt. Oh, my goodness. I've got, I've got a weekend. There was actually a Thursday gig, too, but it got canceled due to the river cresting. We were supposed to play the blues cruise. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah well, you know, you take the work when you can get it, and I feel fortunate to have it as I knock on wood here Amen. Uh, at my house. Um, and so uh, the other thing we want to do is announce that we are finally a part of the Lost Podcasting Network. We're very Woo! proud of that. Yay, Ryan uh, from the transmission who runs the blog there uh, has put us put a link to our blog up on it. Uh, you can catch the all of the podcasts. Uh, they post when they put up a new episode uh, at lostcasts.blogspot.com. Uh, and that's uh, podcasts like the Lostaholics Rewatch, um, The Lost Revisited Now, Donald is Lost, Jacob's Cabin, Lost Mythos Theorycast, 
Um, our blog is at keystoloss.blogspot.com, and you can email us also if you wish to uh, submit a comment about our show or just uh, about any future episode or have any suggestions or any theories. Send an email to keystoloss at gmail.com, or we have a listener line which you can call in and leave a message. Uh, that's one three one four seven five four nine six six two. Any uh, other plugs we need to give here, Liz? I think that's pretty good. That's a nice list. <laughs> that's a that's a nice uh, full thing. I yeah, I'd really like to thank uh, Lostaholics Rewatch for allowing me to be part of the panel. I had a great time with uh, Kurt and Dan and Nancy and uh, Time is Relative and Anna from Indiana uh, the other night on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. Of course, Heath from Lost Revisited Now has just been amazing and, and fun. And we're actually going to do a top ten episodes, uh, Lost Episodes uh, show later in July. Uh, we're going to try and do it towards the end of July after he has his big uh, podcasters uh, ramble on. And uh, it should be a lot of fun trying to pare down the ten episodes that you really like that are your most favorite of Lost. I'm looking forward to that. Heath also does a, a, a show called The Film List, uh, which is where we kind of got the idea to do the top ten episodes together. So it will be Heath and Miss Wendy and myself and you, Leslie, uh, all hashing out our own top tens and seeing where, you know, comparing our, our lists. And so let's get into initial reaction. I'm sure that doesn't mean that much to you. Because back when you were called in the shots, you pretty much just reacted. Initial reactions. Okay, Leslie, when you first uh, watched the, the pilot episode and saw the second half, what did you think of it? Well, you know, I was I was definitely intrigued from uh, uh, part one and part two when I first watched it. Um, this time around, um, you know, I liked I think I liked the first half of the pilot. Um, it was a little bit more exciting to watch it than uh, than the second half, and um, mainly that's not because it wasn't a great episode, but just because it's so uh, expositional. I think in in its uh, layout, you know, we're getting little bits of information about each of the characters and. Um, and, you know, setting up some questions and stuff. There are some great moments in this um, episode, but my, my initial reactions are, ah, yeah, you know, it's kind of laying the groundwork here. That's how I feel about this one. What about you? My reaction was kind of similar to yours at, at, on the second half, but I did find a lot of uh, intrigue uh, as well, and that was on some of the issues. Uh, uh, of course, one of them was resolved right in that pilot, the handcuffs. Um, uh, Charlie's addiction I found fascinating. Uh, why polar bears might possibly be on an island in, in the South Pacific was very intriguing. And the French transmission and the fact that it had been 16 years since uh, since it had been started and no one had evidently come, uh, I, I found all of that to be, uh, to, to really uh, leave some nice questions to be asking to go into the next episode. So let's go into the scene breakdown. Well, let me break it down for you, Mikey. Scene by scene breakdown. You or me, Leslie, which would you rather do? Go for it, Matt. All right. Well, I'm going to start off, and this is a short little scene. Uh, Jack, Kate, and Charlie, they're returning from the cockpit after the rain and the smoke monster. Um, Jack is trying to use the transceiver. He's not being very successful. Charlie repeatedly asks if it's working. Jack says no. Um, and then Kate finally asks Charlie what he was doing in the cockpit bathroom. Uh, he tells her he thought it would be obvious that he was puking. 
be his one and only tangible contribution to the trip. And uh, Kate says, she no, she's glad that he came. And he says, every check needs a coward. And she says, no, he's not a coward. And the camera starts to focus on him as we go into the next scene. That first little buffer there was just kind of a funny little scene. It was kind of heartwarming for Kate to kind of say, no, it was great that you were with us and, and, and all of that. And, you know, other than that, it was just basically to set up the flashback. Yeah, I think so too, and and to to bring us back into to to what is the game, you know, to to remind us what happened in the cockpit before and where they're coming from. It felt like kind of a a, um, a throwback to like you know kind of pull everything together and remind us where we just were before the scene began to set it up. Um, yeah, but Charlie's Charlie's cute in that one too, even though he's lying. <laughs> Um, we're, uh, we're taken then, uh, to, um, a flashback of Charlie on the plane where he's sitting in his seat and he's acting very nervous and he's tapping his drive shaft ring on the handrest and, um, the, uh, the flight attendant is asking if, um, if he's okay, if he wants anything and she's kind of persistently asking and, and eventually after saying no thank you a couple of times he says please, you know, in a very kind of perturbed way like leave me alone, um, and uh, this seems to kind of surprise her, and um, she's kind of concerned, and you see her um, walk to the back of the plane. Um, and the next shot, we see Charlie turning around to look over his shoulder and see her talking with the other flight attendants in the back of the plane. So um, he's he's feeling very paranoid, um, and uh, he he starts to see um, uh, Cindy, the, the, the flight attendant, moving towards him, coming back up the aisle after having spoken to the other two, and so he immediately and very quickly unbuckles his uh, seatbelt and uh, starts moving forward through the plane as um, the flight attendants are coming after him. They're calling out to him. He keeps moving faster. He bumps into Jack on the way. He finally moves into the, the next section of the plane, and um, when there's an obstruction, he changes aisles, and, and walking through the aisle, he bumps into both Boone and Shannon. Um, and uh, and uh, he's continuing to walk um, uh, toward, he's looking for an open bathroom, which he, uh, he finally finds. Um, so he's inside, he's, um, he's, there's, some, there's starting to be some turbulence, you can, you know, just before that, you can see the, the flight attendants are stopping to hold on for a second as, as they're moving towards the bathroom. Once inside, he's pulling out some heroin, he's getting his fix, that's uh, when we, we learn that he's, he's got a, an addiction, and um, he puts some of it in his mouth, and you see him, you know, you see that 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 addiction kind of uh, satiated there for a minute, and um, the stewards are banging on the door, and um, he uh, asking, telling him he has to open up the door, um, and he, uh, as he's getting ready, and he's dropping the heroin into the toilet, we have a really uh, a strong um, 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 drop in altitude, and you see that people are hitting the ceiling inside the plane, and, and um, he, he eventually comes, uh, very quickly comes out of the bathroom, and he almost gets hit by a food cart that's rolling very quickly down towards him. Um, he quickly makes his way to a seat uh, a few rows back and, and buckles his, his belt and, and, um, and puts the mask on as the plane starts to, to dive down. So it was. Um, this was a really high energy scene and a you know a high energy flashback. I thought it was. Um, it was. Uh, it answered some questions right off the bat, and 
and um, and you know brought us back to to more information about what was going on with each character as the plane was crashing um, or as was dropping in altitude. So. I also thought it was cool looking back that both Shannon and Boone and and Jack were all bumped into by Charlie on the way. Um, that was a that was a nice way to do that. And of course, you know, it's not something I noticed the first time around. Um, the real question I had beyond that was um, was the the point of view from which that flashback was shot. And I wonder if you know that was the realistic flashback. You know, the the stewards really were coming after him like that, or if it was kind of shot more from his perspective, and we were seeing that he you know experienced experiences a lot of paranoia when he's when he's taking heroin. Um, it seems in general, and you know, um, you can jump in here on this mat too um, and throw in your two cents. But it seems like generally the the flashbacks are supposed to be told from kind of a narrative position, so it's it's supposed to give us kind of a you know an unbiased. Um, uh, a view of of the flashback, but I don't know in this in this in this situation, and especially watching it for the second or third or fourth time, I, I was wondering like what that perspective might be and how affected it might have been by where Charlie was, you know, mentally himself. Yeah, uh, I've had a discussion with a, a few of the other podcasters about the whole perspective thing, and and uh, he, uh, especially of Lost Vista now, seems. To, to feel strongly that a lot of scenes, not even just flashback scenes, but many scenes are shot from the character's percep- uh, perception. Um, we had a whole thing about the continuity about uh, Ben getting shot in season five. You know, uh, in He's Are You, it looked like he'd been shot directly almost in the center of his chest, yet when we see uh, uh, Jen turn him over and, and whatever happens, happens, the the, the the, the wound seems to be more on it on his on his right side. Um, that could be a, a, a huge uh, a, a huge uh, indicator that things are shot from certain perspectives. Uh, for instance, Saeed saw from his perspective that he that he shot Ben squarely in in the heart and, and killed him, whereas the the reality was something different. That that was one where that was brought up, and so. I don't know if that was a plan from the very beginning, but I, I definitely, in terms of, of uh, flashbacks, I would say that you're definitely onto something there about things being shot from the perspective of the character's flashback, and that uh, the paranoia might have been uh, uh, more amplified by his flashback than what was actually happening. But once, of course, he started acting par- paranoid, uh, I'm sure that that would have alerted the stewards uh, mm-hmm. to, to something being wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And mo- moving on to uh, scene three here, we're at the beach uh, with Shannon and Boone, and Boone asks for help sorting others, or sorting clothes. Uh, Shannon says no, uh, they're coming, uh, meaning the rescuers. Uh, then uh, Boone kind of storms off, and, and Claire uh, asks if Boone is Shannon's boyfriend. Uh, she lets us know that he's her brother. Claire comments about uh, her uh, shape, meaning uh, saying, I wish I had a stomach, and Shannon asks if Claire knows if it's a that she hasn't felt the baby move since the day before. Uh, then we see Jen catching some uh, exotic spiny shellfish, and son is watching. Uh, Michael comes up to her and asks that she's seen his boy, which is Walt. She responds in Korean. Uh, suddenly, Jen yells at her, in, uh, also in Korean, and she buttons the top button of her shirt. Um, Michael, in seemingly uh, seeing that uh, 
he's neither going to get any information or, or, or even wants to be hanging around that uh, uh, moves on and he's calling for Walt, uh, which cuts to Walt, and then he is in the jungle looking for uh, his dog, which he calls Vincent. Uh, he finds uh, a pair of handcuffs as he's looking around, um, and then Cole comes up upon him and, and, and yells at him for not staying on the beach. Uh, he notices the handcuffs that Walt has, and Walt tells him that he just found them. Uh, Michael then kind of looks around in the jungle and grabs Walt to take him back to, to the beach, and that's where we go to a break in the show. Um, there's lots, lots of expositional <laughs> info here um, in terms of uh, things about Shannon and Boone. We find out that they're brother and sister, not boyfriend and girlfriend, uh, and uh, Claire hasn't felt the baby move, and there's a lot of ways to look at that. Uh, uh, that whole thing now with the, with the season five uh, and the whole reveal of the uh, the statue uh, being about fertility and all was it was it an effect of, of of the island or was it an effect of just the trauma of the crash and of course then there's the 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 handcuffs which spawns that whole mystery which is of course later solved in the in the episode. Yeah, and um, I really liked the way um, there was a, a nice mislead in this one. Looking back, you know, the, the, when when Michael finally finds Walt in the in the jungle, and and Walt shows him the handcuffs. You know, as they start to, you know, Michael has that look of surprise, of course, you know, seeing a pair of handcuffs in the jungle. Um, but as they start to walk away, he's not. He's not looking down at the handcuffs. He's looking around into the jungle, which is, is, is kind of leading us to believe that, you know, the handcuffs are maybe part of the jungle or something or, or you know, something strange is going on where someone's using handcuffs on the island for something, which, you know, um, I think when, we, when we're first watching Lost, you know, and, we, and we, we're, we're seeing these, you know, monsters in the jungle and we're trying to figure out what's going on, you know, I mean, one of the questions we're trying to figure out also is who else is on the island. So I thought that was uh, the way that they shot Michael looking at those handcuffs was kind of uh, a nice. Um, it kind of it kind of it kind of threw us off the scent a little bit. I felt like for me anyway. Um, and uh, you know, again, we later we we figure everything out about the handcuffs. But I, I I liked the way they shot that. I thought it was cool. Yeah. So um, moving on in scene four, um, we uh, uh, Sawyer and Saeed are fighting on the beach. Um, Michael's kind of trying to stop them, um, but, you know, not with any real effort. <laughs> He's just kind of saying, come on, guys. And um, uh, Jack, Kate, and Charlie um, are, are returning while the fight's going on. And uh, the fight becomes a little bit more serious, it seems, as it goes on. And so Jack finally uh, breaks it up and, and pulls them apart. And uh, we start to learn what the argument's about. Um, Saeed says that, that Sawyer accused him of crashing the plane. Um, Michael explains that Walt found the handcuffs, and, um, and uh, so Sawyer points out that he saw Saeed sitting on the plane with his hands folded underneath a blanket. Um, so uh, the guy next to Saeed didn't make it, and um, he saw that Saeed pulled out of line before the flight. So they 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 start to almost fight again over over all of this conversation, and um, and and Kate gets involved and yells stop. And um, I think that's kind of a common thing. Sometimes when the woman yells stop, you know, in the middle of a man fight, you know, it tends to kind of stop things some in some situations. And and this was one of those. So um, she explains that they found the transceiver, but it isn't working, and asks if anyone can help. 
Um, Saeed says yes, and Sawyer says, oh, of course, you know, <laughs> um, and he's protesting. Um, Hugo and Jack call Sawyer off after Sawyer calls uh, Hugo a name, and it's, it's very rude, and um, Boone then approaches Jack and asks if there were any survivors at the cockpit, and Jack kind of hesitantly says no. And um, Saeed gets the transceiver and takes a look at it, thinks he might be able to fix it. Um, and then the scene ends with Rose telling Jack that he should take a look at the, the man with the shrapnel. So this was, I mean, not, not, not too much going on in this scene. Um, uh, this being a rewatch, I, 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 you can definitely see Kate kind of like looking down in a way at the mention of the handcuffs. Um, but I certainly didn't notice that the first time through. Um, what do you think, Matt? Yeah, the mention of the handcuffs with her looking down was 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 one another one of those clues, like we saw with uh, Charlie's reaction to the cockpit, which we later found out why. Um, it's and looking at it from even a season one perspective rewatch, you can see uh, why the tension between Sawyer and Saeed was so high during uh, actually uh, episode Confidence Man. He was uh, uh, left to go, uh, or he left the camp because he was ashamed of what he had done. Uh, to Sawyer in terms of torturing him. And right off the bat, uh, we have this tension between these two guys. And um, and in actuality, uh, later on, they actually become uh, almost on the same side in a larger picture, which is the camp of do we move to the caves or not, uh, which uh, Jack tries to encourage everybody to do. So there's all kinds of little divisions already starting to happen, which you can find uh, uh, mentioned in the... Uh, the opening of the incident uh, where uh, the anti-Jacob and Jacob are speaking and saying, you know, uh, they come, they fight, they destroy, they corrupt. Um, already there is division uh, and, and fighting among, among them, and they haven't even been there uh, 48 hours yet. So uh, that's kind of interesting to think about as well. So moving on to uh, scene five, Saeed uh, starts to take the transceiver apart, uh, and he's starting to work on it. Uh, Hugo uh, comes and sits beside him, uh, calls Sawyer a chain-smoking blankety-blank, and Saeed uh, says some people have uh, problems. Hugo says Saeed's okay in his book, and he introduces himself. Saeed introduces himself. Um, Hugo asks how Saeed knows how to fix a transceiver. We find out Saeed is a, a military communications officer in the Gulf War. Um, Hugo says he has a buddy that fought over there and asks uh, what branch Saeed was in. Saeed answers uh, the Republican Guard, and Hugo looks uh, surprised by that. Again, this is just a more expositional scene. I really don't have any other comment on that other than Hugo's very funny, Jorge, Jorge Garcia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Hugo is funny in in this one, and um, I I thought it was he. You can tell he's a real he's a real sweetheart when the, in in the way that they they write him him in uh, in the scene. Um, by the way, he kind of reaches out to Sawyer or to um to Saeed to you know to kind of um, use the fact that they've both been put down by Sawyer as a bridge to to start a conversation with him. Um, it's. You know, he's he's definitely looking to connect with someone, and it's very sweet. So, um, in the next scene, uh, scene six, where uh, we're with Kate, she's uh, she's on the shore, she's she's bathing and 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 washing, rinsing her clothes in the ocean, and um, and 
she's moving very slowly and she's, you know, she looks kind of thoughtful. And then we hear Sun calling to her um, in Korean. So we're not, we're not fully, we don't know what she's saying, but she seems to be calling Kate to come in. Kate changes clothes and then, um, and then comes to Saeed, who says that uh, he thinks the transceiver could work, uh, but they're not getting any reception where they are, uh, that they need bars of reception. Um, um, then they have, uh, otherwise they don't have any way of knowing if the signal's working or not. And, um, and to, to just blindly kind of uh, search for that or to, to broadcast at that point would be to waste the battery. So Saeed says they could, uh, they could, um, they should try to get to higher ground to get the best reception. Um, and you see Kate kind of um, hesitantly asking how high, and um, Saeed points out the, or the the camera actually kind of moves to the highest hills in the distance as Kate looks, and it's very slowly like moving up and up and up, and and we're seeing that they're they're about to to take a long walk. <laughs> so um, this is them kind of setting up the the journey they're about to take, and um, and of course was set up with a, a nice. Uh, shot of Angeline, Evangeline Lilly um, in a bikini. So <laughs> that's always intriguing, too. <laughs> it's, it's definitely intriguing for me, I can tell you that. She's pretty sexy. Uh, I mean, how could you not, yeah. like, notice that, you know? Yeah, yeah. She's a, she's a very nice-looking, very nice-looking actress, and, and, and I guess with character as well. Although uh, I'm not a huge Kate fan myself, but I, I, I am a huge Evangeline Lilly fan. <laughs> I wish there was some more to work with. Um, at any rate, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, the, the thing that strikes, strikes me here is the fact that he's got it working. Uh, there's there's no reception or whatever. And of course, we find out in seasons later that uh, the others have been blocking transmissions uh, off the island for a long time, um, which is going to bring up another question to me at at the towards the end of our scene breakdown as to as to why. Uh, Saeed is able to receive the French transmission, but not able to receive any other signals uh, on the island. Um, but uh, we'll discuss that in a little bit. Uh, we then cut to uh, Jack, uh, who is looking over the guy with the shrapnel. Uh, Kate comes to him and asks how he's doing. She seems pretty concerned about him. Jack says he needs to take out the shrapnel or the man will be dead within a day. Uh, but if he can keep the man from going into sepsis and find some antibiotics, he might be all right. Um, Kate uh, says that she's going to go on another hike, uh, indicating her trip with Saeed. Uh, she tells Jack uh, what Saeed had said, and they need to send out a signal. To do that, they need to get to higher ground. Um, Jack, of course, protests, uh, considering what had happened to the pilot, and uh, Kate learns that they might not be any safer on the beach. Jack asks uh, her to wait until he can take care of this guy, and she says that she's worried the battery won't last, but Saeed's worried the battery won't last. So Jack finally agrees, and he says, but if you see or hear anything, run. And we go to another commercial break there. Um, again, uh, knowing what we know now, and even at the end of this episode, it's interesting to see the Kate's reactions uh, to the guy that we later find out is the marshal. Uh, the U.S. Marshal, and, um, and and there there are some really telling signs there that I did wouldn't have never picked up had it not been revealed in the first episode. I would have never picked them up on the first episode. Um, 
I think uh, the only thing I would add is that, you know, already they're laying out the connection between Jack and Kate and their developing relationship. Um, we just kind of see them teaming up um, uh, right away. Um, and you can, you know, it's really pretty clear when Jack takes such a distinct interest in Kate's safety as she's telling him she's going to go on the hike. Um, so, I mean, while Jack tends to care for everybody, which is kind of his ongoing uh, theme, he's, you know, you can see him taking a particular interest in Kate's safety. After that, we move on to scene eight, and um, we see uh, Jin and Sun sitting in their kind of quiet, lonely part of the beach where they are, <laughs> where, where Jin seems to be keeping them both. Um, he is uh, cutting up the, the, the spiny shellfish that he's gotten out of the water, and um, Sun is just kind of sitting quietly near him, and as she tries to help, he slaps her hand and doesn't even respond. He's very cold. Um, Jen then um, leaves with uh, the fish on kind of separated into little little um, little eating um, um, uh, pieces or bite-sized pieces on an airline tray. Um, after he leaves, we see Sun unbutton her top button again, um, you know, to kind of protest or to um, to to go against what what Jin has told her to do. So we're starting to get a sense of their relationship as well, that there's some there's some um, dynamic issues there. Um, Jen moves to Hugo, who's, uh, who's renting out a shirt on the beach and offers him some of the fish, and Hugo laughs at Jen. Um, he says he's, uh, he's starving, but he's not that hungry. <laughs> he's not even close to that hungry, I think is what he says. Um, we then cut to Walt, who is reading um, a comic book with a polar bear drawing in it. Um, as Michael approaches, he notes uh, to Walt that the comic book is in Spanish and asks if Walt speaks Spanish. So Walt says no, uh, that he found it. Um, so again, we're, they're, they're pointing out the, the, the fact that Michael doesn't know Walt that well, doesn't know if he speaks Spanish or not. So there's another little clue there. Um, Michael says when they get home that he'll get Walt another dog, and Walt gets very upset about this. Um, basically, it's kind of an, um, him admitting that he, they're not going to find the dog, that he's given up on, on helping Walt find his dog. So he's upset by that. Um, we then cut to Charlie, who is away from the others, but he's near the beach, and he's pulling out a stash of heroin. Um, then a cut to Jack, who asks for Hugo's help in removing the shrapnel from the man. Hugo, uh, oh, wait, no, no, this is just where he's asking for Hugo's help um, in general. I'm sorry. I'm jumping the gun a little there. Um, he needs Hugo to go through all the luggage and look for the drugs uh, that he needs to uh, um, to um, to take the shrapnel out of the man and, and prevent infection. Um, he tells him what to look for, uh, the antibiotics. Um, Hugo then asks Jack um, what he needs them for, um, and Jack explains what's going on. Um, then a flash to Charlie, who's um, now kind of enjoying a fix. Cut to Shannon, who's crying on the beach as Boone approaches, and um, these are all very quick cuts, but uh, for a second we're going to slow down a little bit and, and, and we're going to get a conversation from Shannon and Boone. She's crying and, and says to Boone that she thinks she was mean to someone who's now dead. And uh, Boone seems to be kind of annoyed by her behavior and um, and uh, says to get over it and, and to, to start helping and um, says that she's worthless. She then gets kind of upset and angry and says she's been through a trauma. Um, he says they've all been through a trauma, but that she's given herself a pedicure. So it's kind of a jab at her. Um, 
she then says he doesn't know what she's thinking and, and finally he says, what are you thinking? And, and she never really does say what he's thinking. Um, she just decides that she's going to go on the hike with, with Kate and Saeed and um, seems more like more than anything she's just trying to upset Boone. So um, she and Boone continue to kind of argue about it as she approaches Kate and Saeed to say she's coming along. Um, uh, Boone keeps saying she's not. She says she is. Kate's you know, Kate and Saeed, you can see them with that look like, oh no, what are you know, what are we gonna have to deal with now? Um, and and tell Shannon it's not a good idea for her to come. Um, Shannon then kind of defensively counters that, you know, Kate isn't more than two years older than her. Um, Charlie sees that, that Shannon is coming and um, asks if um, and uh, and they start to ask each other if they're going on the hike. And when Charlie finds out that she's going on the hike, he says that, yes, he's definitely going on the hike, too. <laughs> so um, very quickly we see this kind of team assembling. Um, and, uh, and Kate kind of strongly says to everyone, you know, you, you can come, but we're leaving now. So um, she kind of steps out of the argument and lets them have their argument, but continues on with their mission to, to start climbing and, and uh, get to a place where they can get a signal. Charlie then tells, says to Shannon that Kate's actually quite nice. Um, and uh, again, another cut to Sawyer, who is, um, who is sitting alone. He's reading a letter. He's looking very sad. Um, he notices the group uh, going on the hike, leaving the beach. Um, Sawyer joins the group. Um, Kate says, you've decided to join us. And Sawyer responds saying, I'm a complex guy, sweetheart. So already we're getting those little bits of uh, of names of of name calling I guess from um, um, from Sawyer. Uh, so they start their journey into the hills, um, and um, this is uh, this is where some very cool music comes in this week. And uh, they start their climb upwards, and we're we're getting some pretty cool. The cinematography here is very nice. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so um, I like the way I, I really like the way Kate diffused that situation. You know, the the argument on the beach and seems like you know there was so much going on in this scene, so many cuts back and forth and back and forth. You know, they're they're, they're definitely amping up the rhythm of of this episode at this point. And speaking of rhythm, Matt, what do you think about? Oh yeah, well uh, this this of course the Hollywood and Vines theme as they're climbing up the hills is my J. Keo moment for this week. Uh, where I kind of explore where, where and how it's been used, uh, how Giacchino's used it for different things, and there's, a, there's pretty much a unifying theme as to when it's used. Um, the other thing that I, I found uh, from a theoretical standpoint, I, and I remember the quandary of this between uh, going between season one and season two, for me, and I, especially for people who then went and did the, uh, the first uh, advanced or alternate reality game, we had kind of learned by the end of season one that Walt had some kind of special powers, uh, even learned uh, in, I think it was the episode special, uh, that when he looked at certain things or certain pictures and certain things seemed to happen, he was looking at a picture of a bird and then a bird flew into the window uh, when he was upset by something. And uh, Walt had, of course, looked at the polar bear in the comic. And then, of course, Michael had upset him. So by the end of season one, I was thinking, well, maybe Michael was the one that created the polar bear, right? You know, the same way that he had the bird fly in the window. I thought perhaps uh, he had somehow um, uh, psychically projected the polar bear. Uh, we later found out uh, in the advanced reality game that it was actually uh, the polar bears were part of uh, the Dharma Initiative. 
And we also found out by the end of season one that the comic book actually belonged to Hugo. Pretty interesting to see all of these little connections that they that they make uh, uh, in between the characters just within the flight, uh, let alone through flashbacks later on with with uh, different people interacting and everything. And uh, I think uh, it was Kurt in the chat had made a, a comment earlier about an, uh, an episode called Solitary, which is one of the the episodes for the Lostaholics rewatch. Uh, this week about how uh, things seemed really half-baked. Uh, the writers weren't really sure where they were going, yet they were laying down all of these things where it could be pieced together uh, later on. And um, I think that's kind of what's happened is they didn't know how long the series was going to run. They, you know, they didn't even know how long, uh, if it would last past the first season or anything like that when they're throwing this stuff down. So let's throw in some mysteries and then, and then come back and, and, and we can answer these questions later. And in some cases, they've uh, answered some of them. In some cases, they may never answer them. We're running out of time uh, as we go to the end of the, end of the series. But um, at any rate, that's uh, pretty much all I have for that scene. So in the next scene, Jack goes by Michael, who is still seated, uh, uh, and uh, Jack starts going through luggage. Michael asks what he's looking for, and Jack says some sort of blade. Um, he looks at Michael and says, how's Walt doing? Walt, and Michael says he'll be all right. Um, Jack asks how old he is, and Michael uh, corrects himself from nine years of age to ten years of age. He says Walt's more worried about his dog than anything, but, the dog, but that the dog was on the plane. Um, and Jack uh, asks if, it, if it's a lab, and when Michael says yes, he tells Michael that he saw the dog in the jungle the day before, and it seemed fine. We then cut to uh, John Locke, who is setting up a backgammon game. Uh, Walt sees Locke and asks if the game is like checkers. Uh, Locke says, no, it's better, and he asks if Walt plays checkers with his dad. Walt says, no, he lives in Australia with his mom. Uh, when Locke notes no accent, Walt explains that they move a lot and that his mom died a couple weeks ago. John says that Walt's having a bad month. Walt says, I guess. Um, as Walt focuses back down to the game, Locke explains that it's the oldest game in the world, older than Jesus Christ. Uh, when Walt uh, asks about the dice of the 5,000-year-old sets that Locke uh, had, had, had described, uh, Locke explains that the dice were made of bones. Uh, Locke continues to explain that there are two sides. One is light, one is dark. And he holds up the two pieces. Then he asks Walt if Walt wants to know a secret. Then quickly we cut to Jen, who is still trying to give shellfish to people. He comes up to Claire and is insistent that she try uh, to eat uh, as best as their language barriers allow. She finally gives in, and after eating it, suddenly feels her baby kicking again. Um, and uh, she makes Jen feel the kicks, even though he's very reluctant. So this, to me, is the whole key scene of the second, of the second half of the pilot. Um, here we have Locke uh, laying things out. And whether it was intended that way or not for the character to be knowing it, still, that's still questionable. Um, but uh, definitely it was a clue for the writers to say, if, if we get to an endgame in this series, this is what the endgame is going to be. And we finally see, I think, seen that realized uh, perhaps out to its, its, its uh, farthest level. Uh, in the uh, season finale of season five with ja uh, with uh, Jacob and uh, the anti-Jacob. Uh, funny how uh, the terms dark and light are used. Not good or bad. Not white or black. 
I, I think that's a very important distinction because I think what they're saying is that uh, no method is pure one way or the other. Um, there could be some good in the dark side. There can be some bad in the light side. And uh, I, I, I think it makes the whole series much more human, especially looking back on it now from season five. I totally agree with you, Matt. I, I thought this scene was was pretty key to this whole episode, to both episodes of the pilot. Um, um, in fact, I talk um, more about this uh, particular scene and the situation in the Santee section this week. Um, but yeah, I, I love I love the way I love Locke's demeanor when he's when he's setting up the game, um, um, and he's talking about the dark and the light pieces. And you know, it's interesting that you know his skin is light and Walt's skin is dark, and they're sitting there talking about light and dark, and especially knowing the end game. And you know, we're, we're they they seem to be throwing all these these um these references to to um to a balanced uh coin having two sides and again i think you're really right to point out that they're not talking about you know one being good and one being bad or one being like one being goodness and one being evil they're just talking about two sides and um and i think that's really that's that's right on i totally agree with that um i also wonder um since we never had any any closure to Walt's story, I, I wonder what kind of foreshadowing this might be now that we're doing a rewatch of it, knowing what we know now, of um, of a possible you know more direct role for for Walt in this Jacob and Auntie Jacob storyline that we know about now. Um, you know, they seem to be kind of like holding holding Walt's storyline off to the side, and um, I don't know if there's going to be any more of it or not, or if anybody knows about that, but um, I thought that was interesting. Otherwise, um, I, I just thought it was funny that, uh, that Jack said Vincent looked good. I saw him. He looks good. <laughs> I found that to be pretty funny. Um, yeah, so, uh, so we're moving on to scene 10. Um, this is where Kate and Saeed and the gang are making their way through the jungle. Um, and uh, Sawyer is kind of pressing Saeed to try the transceiver, and um, Saeed says he's not going to try it yet. They're not high enough yet. Um, and, of course, it's becoming a shouting match between the two of them. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, stopping the shouting is a, a sound that's coming, uh, it's coming from their left. They, they, hear, they hear something through, through the tall brush that's in front of them in the jungle. And uh, they put together that some kind of animal is, is charging at them. And um, Kate takes Jack's advice and says that everybody should run. And uh, everyone flees except Sawyer, who just keeps standing there. And, um, you know, for a split second, we're wondering why he's not running. And then we see him pull out a gun, and he starts, you know, as the animals, the, the camera shot here is great, too, as the animals, like, charging right at him. Where it's kind of moving up and back at the same time. And we see Sawyer start firing those shots, you know, into the brush before we can even fully see the animal. So, um... After many shots, the animal drops down right in front of him dead. Um, the others are, are totally shocked, um, not only that Sawyer killed it, that it's a polar bear, that Sawyer has a gun. There are all these new shocking discoveries in, in a split second. Um, and uh, Boone asked if that's what kills the, killed the pilot, and Charlie says no. So um, that is tiny compared to that, um, which is kind of a giveaway, um, you know, and, and giving away their secret about what happened at the um, at the cockpit. But um, Kate notes then that it's not a bear, it's a polar bear, and then we have a break. So this is one of those classic lost breaks right after some big strange happening. Um, 
I remember feeling a really eerie surge watching that the first time and, and wondering, like, what, um, you know, what was going on and why there was a polar bear. I, I didn't notice in the first time through that that there was a polar bear in the in the comic that that Walt was was reading and and so um, it definitely brought me to the same conclusion that that Charlie later states when he asks, "Where are we?" Um, so yeah, so this is a this is a, another uh, intriguing scene. <laughs> what do you think, Matt? Yeah, right. And, and of course, looking back on it from a season five perspective, and uh, we hate to be spoilers to anybody who hasn't seen uh, all the whole series yet, but we are doing rewatches, so I think it's safe to, to go ahead and, and, and look at these things from a, from a uh, season uh, five perspective. And that's, of course, the bears were used for experiments on Hydra Island. There was a whole discussion uh, not too long ago, I can't remember which podcast it was, but uh, about, well, why are there polar bears on the main island if the polar bears were used for experiments on Hydra Island? And we got into this whole thing about perhaps they were being, you know, they had to be shipped to the main island because that's where the sub came in, and then they would be shipped over to the to the secondary island, and some of them escaped. And, and, and of course, in 20 years, they could have multiplied a little bit. And, um, the fact that they can survive on the island alone is, is, is quite, a, quite a feat. Um, and I also remember seeing the DVD documentary on 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 this uh, where they showed uh, footage of what they tried to use uh, as the polar bear originally for shooting, which was totally hilarious. It was comical. Uh, the dummy and 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 the the guy in the suit running through the through the weeds and everything. Uh, so if you have the DVDs and you haven't ever seen that documentary, uh, you should you should look at it. Uh, it there's a I think it's in in one of the uh, the filming of documentaries, and, and it's a scene in there where it's just absolutely funny. They did end up using um, uh, some computer graphic uh, generated uh, polar bear shots, uh, especially in the hot, in the tall grass, uh, and and partially morphed with uh, what was not the very practical or was a practical stunt, uh, injecting the bear over out of the high grass towards Sawyer. I think they morphed some of the CG with that too as he made the shot, but it was it was really funny I thought uh, to watch that DVD commentary or not commentary but the documentary. And moving on to the next scene, uh, here we have Jack and Hugo working with the man in the shrapnel. Uh, uh, Hugo asks Jack if he's sure the guy's out, and Jack says he is, uh, but uh, he can't guarantee that the guy won't wake up. Uh, Hugo tests uh, to see if the man is asleep uh, by shouting, "Yay! It's a rescue plane! We're saved! Yay!" It's, that was very funny. <laughs> uh, then he feels satisfied to confirm uh, that Jack, uh, or he feels satisfied to confirm to Jack that he's asleep. And Jack says he needs uh, Hugo to hold him down uh, if he comes around because the pain might bring him around. Hugo protests, saying he's no good around blood. Um, they over argue over the point for a few seconds. Once convinced, Hugo gets over uh, into position over the guy's shoulder. Jack removes the shrapnel, but as soon as Hugo sees the blood, uh, he passes out on top of the guy. Um, amidst the, the 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 prior scene with with the polar bear and all of the mystery and 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 everything, uh, this was a good way to come back from from a break to to, to just throw a little humor back onto it. Doesn't really tell us anything more about any of the characters or anything. Um, it just, uh, other than the Hurley's not very good with blood. 
and we get a little sense of, of Hugo's sense of humor, too, that he's, you know, we're saved, yay! Okay, he's out. <laughs> I really enjoyed the tone that he delivered that, and I thought it was really great. Um, yeah, so um, let's move on. Um, scene 12, uh, we're back uh, in the jungle with the polar bear. Um, they confirm that it's a polar bear, and they, they start wondering where it came from. Uh, it's pretty unnatural that a polar bear would be living in the jungle. Um, the next question, of course, uh, comes from Kate and is asking where Sawyer got a gun. Um, and Sawyer says he took it off one of the bodies. Uh, from the plane crash, um, everyone seems suspicious, and uh, he says the man was probably a U.S. Marshal. And Kate asks how he knows such a thing. Sawyer says he saw the guy with an ankle holster, so he took the gun, thinking it might come in handy, which it did. Um, Kate asks why he thinks the person was a marshal uh, that he took the gun from, and uh, he says, oh, there was a badge. I took that, too, <laughs> and he's holding the badge as well. So um, Saeed then turns on Sawyer and accuses him of being the prisoner that the marshal was transporting. The two of them start arguing, and uh, while that's going on, Kate steals the gun from Sawyer and points it at him. Um, uh, everyone's kind of frozen for a minute, uh, thinking Kate might shoot him. And uh, Kate then asks, um, she just wants to know if anyone knows how to um, how to uh, get the gun apart. Um, uh, and Charlie, of course, in between says, I think he just pulled the trigger, which is another little insert of humor there that was funny in a serious moment. Um, um, Saeed uh, coaches her through ejecting the clip and the round in the chamber, and um, once uh, she finishes this, she, um, she hands the gun back to Sawyer, um, who uh, quickly pulls her towards him, and, uh, and kind of, with, with kind of a little smirk, he says that he knows her type. Um, he knows that he knows girls exactly like her, and um, and uh, and Kate seems kind of taken aback by this, but but she's kind of trying to look strong in the face of of Sawyer, and um, she walks away and and stands on you know away from everyone on the other side of a tree, and just is kind of you know seems to kind of be getting it back together. Um, so this is uh, for me in this scene. I really thought this was the moment where we got to see that you know. Um, especially uh, in a rewatch scenario, that Sawyer really is kind of clued into to Kate's complexity, even so early. Um, he's, you know, he's he's aware that something's going on. She's not just a nice girl. Nice girls, you know, who don't know anything about anything, don't grab guns from people like him and 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 turn on him like that, you know, or know when to do that, even perhaps. So, um, so it, it's I, I think that's that's what I mostly took away from this scene. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, uh, the line that she used, uh, does anybody know how to use a gun, or I don't know how to use a gun, uh, she, I think in this one she says, does anybody know how to use a gun, but later on uh, in a later episode, she, while she's doing a bank job to get the uh, little plane back, she says the exact same thing, I don't know how to use a gun, uh, as an excuse to uh, uh, kind of, I guess, free herself from suspicion of, of anything. And uh, that's uh, that's kind of uh, what Kate does. She's she's pretty good at misdirecting if she wants to be, I believe. So uh, as she's walking away from the group, uh, she starts to remember what happened to her on the plane. And uh, Kate uh, is asked by the steward if she wants any more juice. She says no. She's seated next to the man with the shrapnel, um, and uh, that. Uh, 
she says that she, and he says he just wants coffee black as the steward leaves. Then he says that Kate looks worried, but she has to stay positive. Maybe they'll believe her story. You know, he believed it. Kate says she doesn't care what he believes. He agrees and asks if she's sure she doesn't want more juice. And she says no. She reaches for her juice, and we reveal that she was the one in the handcuffs, uh, and they're bound to uh, her seat or tray table. I wasn't sure which. Uh, suddenly, the turbulence hits, uh, and uh, as things start to settle out, the first time with the first round of turbulence, she says she has a favor to ask. Uh, he says this really ought to be good, but that's when the, the plane suddenly hits the air pocket and starts to dive. Um, and sends things flying in the air. Uh, a case hits the. Uh, hits the marshal in, in the head and uh, knocks him out. Uh, the face mask dropped, but Kate can't reach hers due to the restraint uh, her cuffs. Um, she manages to get the keys from the marshal and unlock her own cuffs. She gets her mask and takes a, a couple of uh, 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 breaths uh, before taking that mask and putting it on the unconscious man and then grabs another one for herself shortly. Um, after that, the, the Plane's tail breaks off, so we find out uh, that the tail broke off in midair, and uh, then uh, a man goes flying out as she hangs out, as she hangs on. Um, then we flash back to the present, where Kate looks in concentration, where Saeed says approaches her and says they should keep moving. She agrees and follows him. Um, the main key of this scene was to reveal that it is Kate in the handcuffs. Um, there was another thing that I noted in, in, in our episode of the pilot part one. I, I, I noted that uh, perhaps Rose, because she was just hanging on to her mask um, and had blacked out possibly like Jack, would be the reason why she needed to be resuscitated because of the depressurization. Uh, of course, Kate did say, say, say that she saw the whole thing, so I guess she stayed awake the whole time, which is the difference with her holding her mask on uh, rather than opposed to Rose, if Rose did in fact pass out, which we'll never find out, but it's just fun to speculate on. Well, um, yeah, yeah, and I think um, you know we've we've seen the, we saw the cuffs in the first half of uh, the pilot, and you know we're seeing them again in the jungle this time, and then you know there's there's talk of of the cuffs, and then um, and then we're seeing the flashback where we're figuring that out. Um, I guess I'm still kind of unclear, though. Maybe you can clear this up, man. I'm still kind of unclear that she's, you know, we saw right before she sews Jack up in the in the first half of the pilot, you know, that she's rubbing her hands because she's having to have pulled her hands out of out of the the cuffs. You know, it seems like if she had access to the keys right there, she she definitely unlocked at least one hand of them, and and I'm confused as to how she would have gotten off the plane without having already unlocked them, or why they would have been in the jungle to begin with. Am I missing something major there? Sure, uh, but as I look back at that scene as well, I I realize that part of it, part of the uh, the 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 scrapes on her wrist that we saw when she first met Jack, could have been from her struggling to reach the the mask against the... Oh, yeah, yeah, so, okay. Yeah. So uh, uh, rather than slipping out of them the same way that she did in the deleted scene in Season 3, I now have to go back and, and re-amend my, my whole thing about that and say it was obviously it must have just been from her the fact that she was struggling up to try and reach the mask, and that's when she scratched her wrists up pretty good. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, next, uh, we see Jack with the marshal. 
um, Jack is attempting to stop the bleeding um, as the marshal starts to wake up. And Jack's saying, oh, no, oh, no. And the marshal's waking up in pain and, um, and grabs him and, a and asks him an unexpected question, where is she? <laughs> um, I mean, it's not totally unexpected since we now know what, you know, that, that he was the marshal and she was the prisoner on the plane. But, you know, when someone's bleeding like that and they grab you, it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I think we all, or at least I assumed right off the bat that that was about pain. But um, Jack asks who? And then immediately we get a cut back to Kate and the gang in the jungle. And uh, they've reached a plateau um, that's mainly free of trees or has some open space. And Saeed pulls the transceiver out. Um, Sawyer, of course, is argumentative that, you know, before it wasn't good, but now he can try it. But not before now, just now. <laughs> so he's being sarcastic. Saeed points out that they're a lot higher up than they were, and uh, he turns it on. He starts to get excited and says that they have a bar. Um, He's um, he's getting feedback um, um, on the on the transceiver and uh, is trying to hone in on the signal. Um, he's starting to figure out that something else is transmitting, and as they all stand around, um, he uh, continues trying to isolate that transmission. Um, it starts to come in, and we hear that it's a French woman's voice. Um, and uh, Saeed asks if anyone speaks French, and uh, Boone immediately points out that Shannon speaks French. And so um, all of a sudden Shannon becomes really important to the, the mission here. She uh, denies that, that she speaks French and says, you know, that even though she was in Paris, she was, you know, she wasn't learning French, she was just drinking and hanging out with friends. And, um, and Saeed uh, explains that the battery is dying and to please do her best to translate. Um, Shannon stops for a moment and kind of gathers her wits about her and, and, and says it's, that it's, it's a repeating message. Um, Saeed agrees, and um, Shannon finally feels compelled to grab the transceiver and, and, and translate the message. Um, she says that the message says, please help me, please come get me, I'm alone now, please someone come, the others, they're dead, it killed them, it killed them all. And then the battery dies. So um, pretty dramatic. Um, Saeed calculates uh, based on the, the the repeating number and the amount of uh, the length of time that each transmission um, uh, takes to repeat that um, the message has been playing for 16 years and five months over and over. And Charlie asks the question, guys, where are we? And then we get the thud right at the end. So this was this was great. This was a great ending um, to to the second half of the pilot. Um, the French transmission was awesome. I mean, that was that was really a, a nice a nice thing to for the writers to to write in and and um, you know at the end of their long mission they you know they're coming to a point where they're learning that probably never be rescued <laughs> so um so uh what do you think matt yeah uh you know it's the we of course now know that the, the source of the french transmission was uh the radio tower on the island and that uh, uh danielle rousseau was the one who uh made the recording uh and and uh some of that stuff we find out uh uh right in the first season, which isn't so bad. Uh, the the complexity of it all reveals itself a little more later on with, with others blocking transmissions and everything. And, and it, this was a the question that I had is, why is Saeed able to pick up 
uh, the transmission of, from the radio tower unless it's just because of their relative closeness to it at the time. Maybe they didn't even realize how close they were. And it seemed like it took a couple of days uh, for the group in Season 3 to get to the radio tower, um, or at least an overnight uh, journey uh, from, from the beach camp. So uh, maybe it was just the relative altitude, and it was above the transmitting of or the uh, the um, transmission blocking that the others were doing. Um, not sure exactly uh, what to think of all of that. And and uh, it's funny too. I, I uh, last week uh, when Lost Holics rewatch did a, a rewatch of the of the episode. Uh, of this episode, or I guess it was two weeks ago, two, or two Sundays ago, uh, Kurt, uh, who's in the ch- chat right now from the Black Rock podcast, made an interesting observation. It, to, to imagine Saeed making that kind of calculation, okay, it's about their second long, and it's been playing in, in, in its iteration, or iteration, whatever. And <laughs> to, try, to come up with that kind of calculation that fast is pretty amazing. And, of course, uh, I... I'm assuming they did the math in order to come up with the 16 years thing since 16 is one of the numbers, or maybe not. Maybe they hadn't even thought of what the numbers exactly were at that time. Uh, I would hope that they had at least that much since they did make a big deal of it um, in a later episode in the season called Numbers, which is actually Hurley-centric. Um, it was, uh, you know, but it, it, was, it was pretty funny uh, to, to think about that as well. So any other thoughts about that, about any of the scenes before we go on? No, no, I think that's good. All right, well, then let's get into our theories section. Besides, Faraday's got some interesting theories on what we can and can't do here. Theory discussion. And in our theory section, uh, why don't we go ahead and start with you this time, Leslie? I usually kick it off with a, 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 a some kind of farm buster question that always ends up being proven wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, my my big you know my, my big thing right now um, in in at this point is, uh, is is Walt's involvement and what's going on. And I've been kind of asking myself and and even talking to you about this matter over the last several months. You know, um, maybe even since the beginning of this last season. You know, where's where's Walt? <laughs> Um, and, you know, we were really led to, I mean, it's, it's one of the, the big, like, hanging, hanging threads for me right now is, you know, we were, we were really led to believe in earlier episodes, you know, and all through the seasons that, that Walt was, was special and, you know, he's even, you know, kidnapped and, and been told by others who don't know him that he is special after spending some time with them. So it's kind of like, you know, I'm wondering what, what's, what's Walt's involvement in all of this and, and where he's going to come back in. Um, and if he's going to come back in, you know, he's not even on the island anymore at this point, you know, from what we know now. Um but um, it, it really, you know, this this the, the scene with the backgammon game and 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 Walt and Locke sitting there talking, you know, it just it just seems like maybe something's going on there, and and um, and uh, you know, maybe he really is going to play a, a larger role in in some of this end game coming up. I I think it'd be really, I, I'd be surprised if the writers don't bring him back in at some point for for this, and and I wonder if you know this backgammon game was kind of, you know, if 
if they didn't mean it to begin with, if they're they're really able to tie it back in with that that very beginning, you know, of the two of them playing backgammon together. So, um, you know, and we never do uh, know what the secret is that that Locke tells him at that point, um, you know. And since the first time, you know, if we're just watching the pilot without any anything that we know now, you know, it just makes us think that Locke's kind of a strange guy. But you know, knowing what we know now, and and you know, the possibility that that Auntie Jacob is already at play here, you know, it makes us wonder what, what secret he might have told Walt. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't have a theory about right now about what that question is, but um, it's rolling around in there, you know, I'm thinking about that. Yeah, um, it, it, it remains vague when Walt relays what it is to Michael in a later later episode. He does say that Mr. L- uh, that John said that a miracle happened to him, which mm-hmm. I am assuming is, is the uh, uh, Oh, that's that right. Yeah, walk, that he walks. That he can walk uh, after being bound in a wheelchair uh, for for four years, but it was just put in that way. Um, it wasn't said specifically. He didn't tell. He didn't tell Locke exact or didn't tell Michael exactly what the secret was, um, and that again may have been left ambiguous, just so that the writers have something to build on later on. Um, Kurtz mentioned many times uh, as well that it's, uh, you know, that this whole first season is about getting us invested in the characters and, and laying in some groundwork for mythology where they could work. When, when Walt was taken out in season two, when him and Michael left on the boat at the end of season two, um, they, uh, you know, they left things very much up in the air as to what would happen with either of them. And then, of course, when they brought uh, Michael back in season four, uh, it, it seemed logical that, that Walt would be coming back, and, and we've been kind of led to believe that Walt does have this larger role uh, in things. We, we saw him at the end of Season 3 uh, with, uh, uh, with Locke in the pit, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Dharma purge pit, as I call it, uh, looking up. And, and it was, of course, just a manifestation of Walt, probably by uh, Auntie Jacob uh, at the time. Uh, in order to uh, uh, get Locke going again, possibly Jacob. There, there, there. For me, there's, and, and this gets into a whole theory thing. Is there's whole aspects of of who is playing what role when manifesting the when manifesting the dead, when or or people away from the island. Um, we we had a big discussion about this on Sunday on the Lost Holics rewatch as to whether uh, uh, the fact that. Uh, ben had seen um, uh, his mother, who had never been to the island. Uh, whereas in other cases, we've seen only uh, dead people who have actually died on the on the island manifested. Um, not that the difference means that, that there's different people. Uh, uh, there was an excellent point brought up that that possibly both Jacob and this Auntie Jacob have the same kind of powers, a balance of power, uh, which allows them to do both kinds of things. Um, and uh, either manifesting the dead itself or, or, or projecting uh, an image made perhaps from someone's memory or what have you. But the, getting back to the Walt thing, Walt was taken off, I think, uh, partially because you have a, a young actor who is growing by leaps and bounds, uh, and it would be hard to explain him growing two feet between day 97 and day 98 on the island. 
um, very, and uh, and even uh, uh, I remember them making a reference in season four when Block told Sawyer about seeing Walt uh, that there was a comment made of it was Walt but he was taller <laughs> in order to explain the fact that the actor had grown you know a couple of feet at the time uh, and now being as how they put another three year. Um, uh, uh, a string between the time that the, the Losties left the island and, and, and the ones that are in 2007 time period have come back, they can, they can actually weave Walt back in into season six uh, pretty seamlessly and, and just show that he's grown as they did in uh, uh, the season five episode, Life and Death of Jeremy Bentham. Um, so it's not to say that, that Walt isn't going to, to come back or is going to come back. I have no way. It's probably up to the negotiations with the actor. Uh, many, many things that we've been told were going to be big storylines ended up having to be cut short because of, 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 of negotiations with actors and, and have you that. The writers, and in fact, the writers, when they first started, wrote many of these characters based on the people that they were casting. They were trying to cast them for certain roles and then they weren't quite right for that role, but they really liked the actor, so they made up another character for, for uh, or another role for that actor to play. Um, so hopefully we will see Walt in a larger part of the story. I'd like to see um, uh, Gion and, and uh, Aaron definitely come back because we've been led to believe that Aaron is just as seemingly just as important as Walt is. Um, but who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll see what we see. Uh, and... This episode, looking back on it from a total theory standpoint, there's, there's so much discussion two Sundays ago on the Lost Re- uh, Lost uh, Lost Alex rewatch, pardon me, uh, that uh, about whether this lock is actually lock. There was speculation: did lock actually die in a plane crash? And and this has been dark lock the whole time. My argument against that uh, and why that seems a, a little bit too far fetched to me is that. Uh, why go off the island and die and then come back and re-manifest that way? It just doesn't seem like a, a possibility. I haven't ruled out the possibility that Locke is, being, is, is receiving influence from the island from both sides, from both Jacob and anti-Jacob, uh, which uh, even in the very first uh, half, of, half of this pilot episode where he's out there and he's got his arms stretched out in the rain and it's almost like he knew the rain was coming, like he, things were being revealed to him. It wasn't just, wasn't just the miracle of, of, of being alive uh, from the plane, you know, surviving a plane crash there as far as I can tell. It was definitely something more to it. And, uh, and the, the, the game revealed. Uh, this is definitely, we have a dark side and a light side in, 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 in Jacob and anti-Jacob and all of this stuff uh, points to to an end game. Now, whether uh, the lock, the actually Locke's character, was speaking from that point of reference, is unclear. I think it could, a case could be made either way. My bet is that it's coincidence, um, uh, but I think that the writers did want to let us know what this what this whole thing was actually about. And really, when you look at it, every every television show that's a drama is about is about two sides battling one way or the other um, to, to find things uh, uh, about themselves or, or what have you. Almost all dramas are about that. It's either the cops against the robbers or, 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 or you know, uh, the, the chief of surgery against, against uh, the, the, the 
the, the renegade doctor or, or what have you. Those, those kind of those kind of themes are presented in, in every television show. How well they're done is what makes it is what makes Lost, of course, so incredibly different from most of your television shows. Is is, is, is how well they've developed those kind of conflicts uh, into something very interesting and and intriguing. Um, the uh, and the other thing is is where do the polar bears come from? And of course now we know the answer. Um, but I, I remember thinking back the first time I saw that, just what could possibly allow a polar bear to survive in such a temperate climate. And um, and now we, as we're going back and rewatching these things, people are saying, well, you know, there's a possibility that uh, that, that that some polar bears escaped while they were being observed uh, at uh, on the main island. Remember that. Uh, uh, Pierre Chang seemed to have to observe everything last season whenever something wrong happened. The body that was brought back from the swan uh, during Some Like It Hawk started out going to uh, back to the, the main security, uh, to the barracks, and ended up going out to the orchid for, for, um, for Pierre Chang to examine. So perhaps there are other scientists uh, at the barracks that would need to examine the polar bears themselves rather than making the trip over. Who knows? Um, and and uh, there's there's also uh, a few things uh, touched on uh, in our feedback section, which I'll get to uh, as that time comes up. We got an interesting email from Jim, who, uh, like many others, believes that uh, Smokey and Auntie Jacob uh, uh, are one and the same. So, anything else there? You know, and I would add something's coming to mind right now. You know, since um, the onset of um, of global temperature change, you know, we've been observing in in polar bears all kinds of new behaviors that we didn't really recognize were were there before. And you know, potentially it's because of their need to to adjust and adapt to their environments. But we now know that polar bears can swim many many miles through the through ocean waters. So um, I don't know that might it's possible that that could that they could lean on that as an explanation for how a polar bear got from one island to the next. Um, that just comes to mind now, though I haven't really thought that through too much. But um, but it's true, the polar bears are, are actually really good swimmers. <laughs> so that's all I'd add to that. All right, so why don't we go ahead then and get into the Santi section. The Santi section, a section hosted by Leslie. So this week in the Santi section, I uh, I just wanted to uh, point out the uh, the really really prevalent use of the yin and yang principles of dark and light, which we touched on earlier in talking about the backgammon game um, that that uh, Locke was explaining to Walt. Um, you know, the, some of the basic principles of, of yin and yang. Um, you know, if you're if you're not familiar with that that concept, is you know, um, again, it's not like one is one is good and one is evil, but you know, there one is dark and one is light. Um, the yin is the one usually associated with darkness, with water, um, odd numbers, um, conservative um, um, traditional things, rivers, valleys, um, the astral world. Those are things that are that are kind of yin oriented, and some things that are yang oriented to give you the opposites of those things, or the balancing principles of those are light, fire instead of water, even numbers, um, reference formation, mountains, and then the physical world. 
So, um, again, like, like you pointed out earlier, Matt, there's always that balance of, of you know, of things going on in, in any show. But in this show particularly, I think um, we can see that. And, and even in this episode, I think we're seeing a lot of that right off the bat. Again, um, just a lot of dark, a lot of light, um, a lot of uh, fighting between, you know, um, different people. You know, the, the fighting between Sawyer and Saeed even um, are taking on principles of, of the yin and the yang. Um, um, for me this week, as, as far as um, the, the way that, that this episode, the second half of the pilot, was shot, um, the one image that really was burned into my head just, you know, in kind of a, a cinematography way was the, the, the shot of of Sawyer sitting in that half circle of plane wreckage, you know, and it's it, with the open end on top. It's burned around the edges, um, and it's it's open at the top. And in the background, you know, we have the mountains of the uh, of of the of the island um, that they were climbing and trying to find a higher position to for the transceiver. But so we have the the open. Uh, the yin, that openness that he's sitting in the middle of, and then you know the the the, the yang, which is the mountains and the physical world that are that are on top. Um, it was really like kind of beautifully and poetically put into that. And it's funny that Sawyer is the one sitting right in the middle of it. You know, it's so so unlikely. Um, you know, he's not really the character that I would necessarily associate with the more poetic or balanced. Um, end of things, but 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 there it is, you know, and and he's sitting there and and he's he's reading the he's reading that letter, you know, he's um, he seems to really be contemplating the the letter and and kind of you know again just rereading it for his own benefit, um, and you know again it was a letter given to him uh, 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 he was writing when when Jacob visited him during his parents' funeral, so. You know, in fact, even Jacob even gave him the pen with which to write that letter. So it's interesting that um, you know, um, um, seeing it's interesting to see this, this these principles of, of dark and light coming together and trying to attain some kind of balance. You know, for for most of this show, they're really kind of fighting against each other and, and morphing back and forth to see which one's kind of on top and which one's fighting back and. Um, and so um, th- this was this was uh, what what kind of stuck out to me the most this weekend in this show and and um, especially with what we know now with uh, the Jacob and Auntie Jacob story and the end game that's that that this is all leading up to um, most likely um, I think it'll be interesting to continue to apply some of these yin and yang um, theories and uh, or properties really to um, the characters and the things that are going on I think we could probably do this for. For every uh, every event and every episode in in um, in the series, so that is the Santi section this week. The principles of Yin and Yang. Yay! Awesome. And we will now get to the Giacchino moment. The Giacchino moment: an analysis of the music of Lost. All right, and in. This week's Giacchino moment, we are going to explore the Hollywood and Vines theme. It's a theme that has a a definite march kind of quality to it, and it's usually used when our losties are either going towards something on a mission or fleeing from something on a mission. And uh, we have several examples here. The episode, the pilot, first introduced it in part two when Charlie, Sawyer, Kate, Saeed, Boone, and Shannon 
were on their way to try and get the transceiver to work at higher ground. And here's that theme. You decided to join us. I'm a complex guy, sweetheart. So there is the first time that we ever heard that theme used, which was in the pilot episode part two. The next example that we're going to hear, you'll hear a slight variation in the theme. Uh, This is from The Looking Glass, when Jack is leading everybody away off the beach and leaving Jin and Bernard and Saeed behind to shoot at the dynamite at the tents. You're going to hear the theme being sped up as the Losties walk away from the camp, from the beach camp. This is to indicate the urgency of their need to get to the radio tower. So here's that theme. All right. Let's do it. How that speeds up there. That's great. It's just, as, they're, as they're moving away from the beach camp, it just speeds up. There's a couple of notations about this theme. It's laborious. It's 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 very straining. It's it's like they're trudging on to something else, or trudging away from something else. You know, it's 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 a mass movement kind of theme. It's purposeful. It's it with the percussion and 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 the the, the strong presentation in the cello and the bass uh, of that and then to add the, the, the higher melody above in the higher strings and and the the dissonant chord with the horns uh, gives you an idea of the tension that's going on here. Great variation of, of the first time we heard the theme. So the next two instances of the theme that we're going to listen to are actually from season five. The first one being from Follow the Leader, when the group of others are being led by Locke and Richard away from the others camp, which is a nice parallel to the prior scene where Jack was leading everybody to the radio tower. Now John is leading everyone to Jacob. And you will hear a variation. Uh, the theme is played slower 
Um, and it's lighter somewhat. The reason being, I believe, is because Richard is going to take his time to lead these guys to Jacob. He, I think he feels quite uncomfortable about what John's doing. And I think it sets up the whole dialogue between Ben and John that happens in this scene, which you will hear as well. So here's the scene. Beautiful day, isn't it? Yes, so far. Richard had some concerns. Concerns about what? This pilgrimage to Jacob makes him uncomfortable. He's expressed reservations about whether or not you know what the hell you're doing. I appreciate you bringing this to my attention, Ben. I know we've had our differences in the past, John. But I'm here to follow you now. So if you need Jacob to help you reunite your people, then I'll do whatever. I'm not interested in being reunited with my people. What do you mean? You told son. I know what I told her, but that's not why we're going to Jacob. And so there you have it. That's a theme, and it's presented much more slowly. Um, again, I think to represent that Richard is taking his time to get everybody to the four-toed statue. He's not in any hurry to get John there because this is unprecedented as far as he's concerned. He hasn't been able to address those concerns directly to John yet either. And uh, so I think they're moving slowly. In this last example of the theme, we're going to again hear it presented rather slowly. But not quite as slowly as presented before in the Follow the Leader. I believe this is because John is now in kind of in the lead with Richard there. And then it also sets up the fact that John and Richard are going to have that conversation where Richard is concerned, and John is going to reassure Richard that he's actually going to thank Jacob. So now, between the two scenes with the prior from Follow the Leader, which we didn't have on the clip, but at the end John tells Ben that he's going to kill Jacob, he instead this time tells Richard that he's going to thank Jacob in the flip-flop. And the slightly faster pace, I think, indicates that he's going to do whatever he needs to do in order to get there uh, a little more quickly. And here's the scene. everybody still got a ways to go to get to Jacob who's Jacob and so there you go later on in that scene of course John reassures Richard that he's going to thank Jacob which we later find out is not the truth we don't know at that point which is which at any rate that concludes this week's Giacchino moment love this theme as does Heath from Lost Revisited now so there you go Heath hope you enjoy this one and let's get to listener feedback you should think it was a stupid idea. Well, what does that say about you agreeing with me? I just hope you figure out something better before we get there. 
Well, I'm open to suggestions. Listener feedback. Okay, Leslie, we got a couple of emails this week. Uh, one is specifically from Jim, uh, which I mentioned earlier in our theories section. I would like to read what he had to say, and it was regarding uh, anti-Jacob. Uh, here he says, uh, picked up your podcast at Donald is Lost and went back and listened to all of your episodes. Liked your thoughts regarding the pilot, though the sound quality isn't good as with your other podcasts. What's the, with the hiss? Uh, let me answer that first, Jim. We were trying to record uh, on my laptop, which created a lot of noise that I could not get rid of and, and make things sound balanced but just because of uh, Leslie and I's proximities to the mic. It's, uh, we've, we've tried several times to record in the same room and, and, and had problems, technical problems, one way or the other. And so uh, we are actually uh, doing these uh, podcasts now from remote locations uh, via TalkShoe. Let's see. Um, and let's go on and continue. So after listening to the Incident Part 2 podcast, I thought I might share with you the answer regarding Smokey and Jacob's enemy. They are one and the same, and here's my case. Think back to the Ben episode this last season. There are two occurrences where Locke, who we now know is usually is actually anti-Jacob, and the smoke monster could have appeared in the same place but didn't. First being when Ben went down in the tunnels to summon Smokey. When Ben came back out, only Sun was there. I guess that means the lack of Locke. And second uh, being when Ben was under the temple, wasn't it awfully convenient that Locke came back with a rope right after Alex disappeared, and that being right after Smokey had judged Ben? Let's look at the dead and their associations with Smokey as well. Alex and Smokey at the same time. Yummy and Smokey at the same time. Good point. Many people have been saying that Smokey is the one who imitates the dead for a while. We now know that the anti-Jacob is one who's been doing that, at least in Locke's case, so why can't they be one and the same? It makes more sense to me to have one single entity with that ability rather than two separate ones. Um, so let me address that just from my point of view, and I, I think that uh, there's a, a, a chance that uh, a lot of, the, of my fellow podcasters will agree with me, on, and, and, and we brought this up earlier, is if, if say, Jacob or anti-Jacob has this power, why wouldn't Jacob have the exact same power? Um, if, if, and especially looking at it from this way, if anti-Jacob wants to unseat Jacob from power by killing him, who's to say that Jacob doesn't have uh, some kind of, uh, of, of extra power or, 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 or not, uh, uh, or, or additional power that, that's strong, and that's why he has to be killed in order for anti-Jacob to, to make uh, uh, or to be able to, I wouldn't necessarily call it ruling the island, but to have his way and not have anybody else come and corrupt and spoil it. I am of the perspective that they're both of the same power, but that certain manifestations now, especially after looking back at the White Rabbit and seeing that since Chris, there was nobody of Christian, nobody of of, of Ben's mother uh, in season three, I, I, I absolutely believe, uh, as Kurt brought up in the in the Boston Holics Rewatch podcast, that there's there's just um, definitely two powers at play here, and and the the only ambiguity ambiguity that we can find is who is doing what when. Uh, we we don't know that for sure, but I think I think it I think it's safe to say that both 
Jacob and Auntie Jacob are using these same devices. Not to say that there's a white smoke monster or a light smoke monster and a dark smoke monster. I'm not sure if that's what it is or if there was, those are just simply other forms that they can take. Remember, when we look at that hieroglyph in Dead is Dead, one of the season, one of the season episodes that you uh, uh, quoted there, uh, there was a, a statue of, or a, a hieroglyph of one god and another god, both um, uh, seemingly either juxtaposed or one offering one to another. And, and we're not sure, I'm not so sure that Jacob isn't a representation of Tauret, uh, the statue, uh, or if uh, and and uh, anti Jacob isn't a representation of what uh, was smoky in that temple as well. I, I, I'm not saying that they're not they're um, I I not saying that dark smoky, if you want to call it that, is not anti Jacob because uh, I I kind of tend to lean that way just a little bit, um, but I'm just saying that the case could be made that at, at any one point, both of them could be at the same place at the same time. Leslie, do you have any thought on that? No, Smokey still eludes me a little bit, but uh, but I really dig these theories. I think that's a good one, Jim. Um, yeah, yeah thanks, a lot of for, questions, thanks, so. for, uh, thanks for bringing it up, Jim, and, and, and I'm not going to rule you out because none of us really can say definitively yet, as far as I can tell. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, thanks for sending in a theory. If you have more, please send them in again. And you can do that by emailing us at keystolost at gmail.com, K-E-Y-S-T-O-L-O-S-T at gmail.com. Uh, or you can comment on our blog at keystolost.blogspot.com. Or you can call our listener line at one three one four seven five four nine six six two. We did get uh, one other short email from Kyle, who actually appears on Jed and Kara's um, uh, uh Lost video casts. Uh, sometimes he's 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 had a couple of his uh, send-ins shown up there on 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 their video casts, which are always great. I love Ted and Kara; they're awesome. Uh, he just says, "Listen to the keys keys to Lost a while ago. Great podcast." He also asked about my chronology DVDs that I do every year during the hiatus, so uh, they are on the way. Uh, what I have done so far for this season, uh, Kyle. Thanks for listening. And uh, let's see, let's uh, give a shout-out to everybody that's there. Thanks to Mr. Kurt Yanko from Black Rock Podcast, one of the, to me, one of the definitive podcasts about loss uh, uh, all over the whole web. Um, Mr. Yanko, thank you for coming and listening to us. Uh, we have Razzle Dazzle, uh, or had Razzle Dazzle in the chat. I'm not sure if she's still here or not. Thank you, Razzle Dazzle. Uh, thank you, Summertime, for coming and listening. And uh, Roberta Lynn Schultz and Guest 6, thank you all for, for coming and listening to our, our live community call podcast. Live from California and Connecticut. Lost Revisited Now's Heath and Miss Windy. <laughs> but it was yeah, a lot of fun. <laughs> Keys to Lost, Matt and Leslie. Very well written and well acted. Still is probably one of my most favorite episodes. All time top ten favorite lost episodes. Lost Revisited Now and Keys to Lost podcasts unite with the film list to create the favorite top ten lost episodes of all time. It was definitely leaving you with that feeling of, oh, right at the end. Who's sheriff in town, boys? 
Y'all best get used to it. Coming in the last half of July. Talk So let's go on to closing thoughts. Closing her up. Closing thoughts. And Leslie, uh, what are your closing thoughts about the episode from any perspective? Well, uh, you know, this this is uh, a, another episode in true lost form where they're they're dropping a lot of answers, they're dropping hints, they're raising new questions, they're um, they're 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 really kind of laying this groundwork like one little tiny piece at a time, and you know, um, and in different in in different orders, you know, the, the the pieces aren't coming one you know touching the the, the one before. There are a few in the middle, there are a few further down. Um, I thought it was a great expositional episode, um, really drawing us in with the characters, which I think a good show needs to do right from the beginning, and uh, I think they've done a good job of that. Um, again, there, um, you know, they gave us more question, more um, information about Charlie and Kate in this episode with their flashbacks. Um, and uh, again, for me, the the real balance of, of dark and light, and those those questions, um, which we can see, you know, all the way into to what we know to be the case now, to to be with, with the current episodes, um, and um, and uh, let's see, and the polar bears. <laughs> it was uh, it was good. Um, I, I thought that the writers uh, left us hanging at the at the ends of, uh, of of both halves of the pilot. Um, you know, with the you know the first half being the question about the jungle monsters, and you know the the second kind of being a question of where are they after a, right after a, a polar bear attack. So again, they're kind of um, they're kind of keeping us keeping us guessing and keeping us surprised with the forces of nature and the the questionable forces of people and how they're going to get along um, as as the the episodes unfold. Yeah, and and my thoughts are now, especially from from this perspective, this is a great episode to look at uh, in its whole entirety, parts one and two, but especially part two, to look at through advanced eyes. Uh, Many of the questions that that we found ourselves asking the first time we watched that show uh, have been answered, of course, and that's always nice to know that at least the writers are going to pay attention enough to, to answer some of the things that we've been questioning, although they did put some pretty large questions out there at the beginning, um, which we knew would eventually have to be answered. Um, I, I look at this episode, uh, especially with all the expositional, you think about how difficult it is to make a pilot and to get people interested in a pilot. Uh, naturally, the, the, the mystery of it was quite helpful. But also, uh, the, the, the sheer amount of exposition that went into, especially the second half of the episode, uh, really gives a testament uh, to the to the actors and ability to to present that expositional material and 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 keep you interested in them, um, you know, finding out about the characters. Already, uh, we're starting to to invest in in each of these characters, and it, it, it truly was set up as kind of an ensemble cast. There was there was uh, especially in the second half of the pilot, there was no uh, one key uh, actor other than perhaps uh, Evangeline Lilly. Uh, that seemed involved in in so many aspects of it. I mean, we're following Jack. We're following you know uh, this this thing between Saeed and Sawyer, but uh, Kate was the one that really stood out. Other than that, though, and and she was the absolute no name of that cast. I mean, this this was her first major role in anything that I that I'm aware of outside of being in Canada, which is where she's from, and 
it really was a testament to the, to this cast and, and the direction of J.J. Abrams uh, to make this show, uh, to give it the, the, the absolute foundation that it needed in order to be as successful as it has. And uh, with that, we're going to go ahead and say goodnight to everyone. Uh, we want to encourage you to, on Sundays at, I believe it's 9 p.m. Eastern, to listen to Lostaholics Rewatch. They'll be covering episodes 9 through 12 this week, which is solitary through... Uh, I can't remember what the 12th episode is, but uh, episodes 9 through 12, uh, they're going to, the Lost of Holics Rewatch, I've been a, a, a gotten a chance to be part of that panel both weeks, and I've had a blast doing it. Uh, everybody is so much smarter than me, and I learn so much every time I, I, I uh, get to participate in one of those. Um, also, uh, don't forget that Heath uh, and Miss Wendy from Lost Revisited Now will be joining us in late July in order to do a top 10 lost episodes we're kind of combining with Heath's film list and we're going to we're going to all present our top 10 favorite lost episodes of all time. We don't have a, an actual date set up for that yet, but it will be a live community call, so we'll keep you informed as we as we go on with that. And uh we are now part of the Lost Podcasting Network, so please uh feel free to drop by there again and that's at lostcast.blogspot.com. I want to say hi to Lost Holics Rewatch, Lost Revisited Now, Donald is Lost, Jacob's Cabin, uh, Lost Mythos Theorycast. Uh, all of those are great, uh, great podcasts. Uh, love Jed and Kara's video cast as well. In fact, if you go to the, the Lost Podcasting Network, there's not a bad podcast uh, listed on there, uh, maybe with the exception of ours, if I may be self-deprecating for just a second. But uh, if you want to give us just a, a, a shout-out, please give us an email at uh, keystolost at gmail.com or visit our blog, keystolost.blogspot.com or give us a call on our listener line, which is 1-314-754-9662. And now we'll break away from Lost for a second and give ourselves shameless plugs. Leslie, you are at Squires and Lafayette Square on June 26th at 8 p.m. Correct. Next Friday night. Nothing this week. Nothing this week. Well, enjoy your trip. I know you're Thank you. Days. Should be beautiful there. Um, hopefully, uh, not too too hot. <laughs> you can catch me uh, every Monday with the Sula Blues Band at Broadway Oyster Bar. Every Tuesday and Wednesday with Eric McSpadden at the Beale on Broadway. Uh, and then uh, this Wednesday, I am also at Park Avenue at Hammerstones and Seward. Uh Friday, I am with the Bottom Duff Blues Gang at the Blues on the Mississippi. Uh, concert series, uh, which is at Jefferson Barracks Park. And then Saturday, the 20th, you can catch me at Mount Pleasant Winery at 2 p.m. and at BB's Jazz Blues and Soups downtown uh, uh, with the Sular Blues Band. And then Sunday, brunch at Squires. So I'll be there the Sunday before the Friday you're there. But I'll try and uh, uh, not eat all of the food for you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> all right. See you guys next time. Stay lost. If you'd like to leave a comment for Matt or Leslie by phone, you can call the Keys to Lost hotline at area code 314-754-9662. Or you can simply leave an email comment at keystolost at gmail.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-L-O-S-T at gmail.com. Also be sure to visit their websites. Their blog is at keystolost.com.
www.blogspot.com or their website at keystolost.bravehost.com. Finally, remember that you can participate in the live call-in talk show podcasts by going to talkshow.com and typing in Keys to Lost in the search engine to find out when the next scheduled community call will be. Thanks for listening to the Keys to Lost podcast.